Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris, and we're here with my friend and co-host Gregory Gordon. Our episode today is called the Goldilocks Zone. Now, that one may need a little bit of interpretation and to help <laughs> us with that. Um, if you we, love porridge, this is the episode for you. That's, this is true. Um, joining us today is Dr. David Baim, who sort of coined this phrase for himself. And later in the episode, he will be talking about that. But essentially, this is all about stretching flexibility and performance, health and performance. And so we're going to initiate the conversation by looking at stretching for two different reasons. Are we stretching for range of motion or are we stretching for performance? Because those are different things and sometimes they get lumped into the same mm -hmm. topic. Yep. So I think we need to sort of tease them apart and look at them a little bit differently because they are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then something I'm really excited about is someone that's read a lot of papers about stretching and literally they say just about everything. So talking to someone like Dave, who's done so much good research in this area. So we're going to revisit static stretching, which has really been you know, basically demonized by a lot of modern uh, practitioners. So, you know, we're yeah, really that is another like four letter word in, in fitness. You talk can, about static yeah. stretching and people cringe and like, no, that's no good. You can't do that. Right. Or at least it's a really polarized topic now. There's, you know, there's mm -hmm. very extreme views on, on both sides. So, you know, this is a awesome opportunity to talk to someone that just has done a lot of objective research in that area. And we'll just... Well, we're going to have a conversation about is it, um, you know, what does the research say and is it as good or as bad as, you know, some people have advertised? Yeah. And, you know, or, or are we going to hear something that we've never heard about it before? So, you know, hold on to your hat because this could be really interesting. Um, we're going to get into some topics that involve sensory motor mechanisms. Okay. That's a mouthful. <laughs> um, and it is a, it is a, fairly sophisticated scientific thing, but I'm pretty sure that with Dave, we can help our audience understand what this is all about and how those sensory motor mechanisms control our ability to gain range of motion or even perform. So that's going to be really interesting. 
Mm-hmm. And then finally, we're going to wrap up with uh, just a discussion of what Dave means by the Goldilocks zone. Yeah, so that'll be fun too. So this is a really good episode. Looking forward to it. And we're going to get right into it. So to get started, Dave, I think, you know, uh, I want to give credit to one of my uh, mentors, a man named Tom Purvis. And he used to say about stretching is like to call, to say stretching is stretching is like calling drugs, drugs. So obviously you can have drugs that grow hair. You can have drugs that help sexual performance. You can have drugs that help with it. So there's obviously a wide spectrum of what drugs cover. And the same thing we have this habit with stretching that like if I ask the average person a question about stretching, I think they automatically in their mind picture someone standing with their leg up on a platform and leaning forward to trying to stretch it. But, um, you know, stretching incorporate, there's ballistic stretching, there's static stretching, there's active stretching, there's dynamic, you know, there's a bunch of different categories. And so um, can we start to parse these things into categories? So first of all, they're stretching for, let's say people in general, either stretch for some type of performance or they're stretching for some type of like range of motion enhancement. Um, is that how you would see it? Uh, well, for the most part, but um, there's been a real paradigm change over the decade. So back in the 1970s, uh, when I was a uh, football player, hockey player, etc., I was told that uh, stretching uh, to increase range of motion would also increase my performance. Because as you remember, I said that my biggest fault was I didn't have that blasting speed that let me get into the Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> and um, so I, I did a lot of stretching and I could do, um, um, I could do the splits. And I thought I would increase my, my stride length. And even with my lack of fast twitch fibers, I'd be able to improve my 40-yard uh, sprint. And I did improve my 40-yard sprint, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I did it because I was doing lots of squats and plyometrics and probably not for my stretching. So Mm -hmm. over the years, especially since uh, the late 1990s, there's been a preponderance. In fact, uh, we just published a um, another review in 2016, where we had about 150 papers and looking at the effects of uh, static stretching on performance. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, of course, as most people listening to this will know that prolonged and let us put an emphasis on this word, prolonged static stretching tends to decrease performance, not enhance performance. So what is prolonged? Yeah, what's prolonged? prolonged? So prolonged, uh, from what our meta-analysis and and systematic reviews have found out, is typically more than 60 seconds per muscle group. So you should be doing about two stretches of 30 seconds for your right hamstring or three stretches of 20 seconds for your left hamstring. And then, you know, doing that for, for every different uh, muscle in your, in your uh, body. Right. And, but, uh, and this can be a long conversation, but the paradigm has changed once again. The problem is, and I was part of the problem, is that I read an article by, by um, Fowles and Sale. So again, Digby Sale, my supervisor, took on another grad student after I left. Uh, Jonathan Fowles, they did a piece of research. They had people stretch their plantar flexures, their calf muscles, for 30 minutes, oh my 30 God. minutes of static stretching. And lo and behold, what did they find? They found that a drop in force and a drop in EMG, muscle activity. Well, who mm-hmm. the hell stretches a muscle for 30 <laughs> minutes? <laughs> well, the problem is 
is that a lot of these pieces of research, their main objective was not to look at the practicality of stretching. So in defense of Jonathan Fowles and Digby Sale, they had read some studies on animals where they had done, um, these individuals, these researchers had done research on extensive stretching of like the chicken, the tissmus dorsi muscle. <laughs> and, you know, once they did it, of course, they had a barbecue and ate it, but at least when they stretched <laughs> And it was tough. Muscle, <laughs> that's right. They had that sport. So they wanted to find out, does this happen? Is there a decrease in protein synthesis in humans with extensive stretching? And so when they're looking at protein synthesis, they thought, well, we might as well measure force while we're at it. And when they measured force in the EMG, they found out that there's a decrease. So they had no intention to say, well, you know, we should be doing 30 minutes of stretching the calves before I go and play basketball. So then what I did and others did was we took that research and we manipulated it. So my first piece of research was 20 minutes of stretching the hamstrings. And with 20 minutes of stretching the hamstrings, again, there was some performance impairments. Well, again, who stretches their hams for 20 minutes? So over the years, what we've done is we've gone from these ridiculous um, durations of stretching that weren't applicable to real life. There's a number of studies that show that the average professional usually stretches their muscles between 12 and 17 seconds each. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten to the point where we've now added a proper warm-up. So in a warm-up, you're usually doing aerobic activity. Then you're going to do some stretching, whether it's static stretching or dynamic stretching. And then you're going to actually do your dynamic activity. You're going to do foul shots or jump shots in basketball. You're going to skate around in hockey. You're going to do pass patterns in football. And when you incorporate the proper amount of static stretching, that is less than 60 seconds per muscle group, into a warm-up, there are either trivial or no performance impairments and you do get an increase in range of motion. So would you say that the increased range of motion is going to improve performance? No. Why do you need an increased range of motion? Well, two things. In some cases, you might need that increased range of motion because you're a hurdler. And if you don't have a good increased range of motion, you can't properly get over the hurdle. If you're a gymnast, you're a figure skater, um, you're a goalie in hockey or soccer, you do need good range of motion. If you're only going for a run and you have a limited range of motion, you're a defensive lineman, offensive lineman in football, again, limited range of motion needed, you still get an advantage in terms of, and this is important, musculotendinous injury incidence reduction. So there's a number of studies out there that say, well, stretching doesn't affect injuries. Well, it doesn't affect all cause injuries. There's a guy named Pope who did um, some research with the Australian military. And he had a, you know, a few hundred military personnel stretch and a few hundred military personnel not stretch. He didn't find any difference in all-cause injuries. But what is all-cause injuries? Well, What is an all-cause injury? Yeah, breaking your ankle is an all-cause injury. Okay. Um, straining your shoulder is an all-cause injury. A concussion is an all-cause injury. So why would you think that stretching your hamstrings would would cause you to have less concussions. <laughs> of course, it's ridiculous. Right. Uh, but when you take a look at the incidence of injuries, musculotendinous, when you're doing sprints or change of direction, the research shows that static stretching will decrease the incidence of those injuries. So when you're stretching, you you can have acute stretching, like in a warm up, where you want to have what are called elastic changes. Elastic changes 
like an elastic band. You take it, you stretch it, you can stretch it, and that snaps back. Right. So you're, you're a tennis player, you're a basketball player, you're a soccer player. You want these muscles that they, you want to warm them up so you don't get injuries. You might want a bit more range of motion, but in the warm-up, that's not going to cause you to have an increased range of motion for, for days and weeks afterwards. If you really want to have an increased range of motion over a prolonged period of time, then you want a plastic change. So a plastic change is a semi-permanent change. And if you want to do that, you don't want to do that right before you're going out to your basketball game. Just like if I was to say, well, to be a better basketball player, you got to get stronger. You know, you're too weak in the upper body. So I'm going to give you a program to make you stronger. Well, you wouldn't have that basketball player doing bench presses before the game. So if I'm telling you, you need a better range of motion to be a better basketball player, you're not going to get it by just doing it before the game. You need an extra session that's different from your warm-up to increase your plastic range of motion so you have a semi-permanent increase. So again, in summary here, you can, you can get increases in range of motion, both elastic, short-term, and plastic, long-term, but they're, they're different types of uh, war, uh, workouts. If you want a plastic, then you can go for longer than 60 seconds because you're not going to go and play tennis, squash, basketball, or soccer right afterwards. And so then you can go for one, two, three minutes of stretching your hamstrings. So Dave, I have a question. This is a, an area of research that's interesting to me and I have a lot of theories and opinions of my own, but um, just combing through the research, um, there isn't a lot to, for any sort of plastic changes for range of motion. There isn't a lot that supports that you actually see real changes in the muscle architecture. Uh, there is a paper by Fritas. I, I want a uh, effective eight week high intensity stretching training on biceps femoris architecture. Um, and they actually did show some, they measured fascicle length and fascicle for anyone, uh, fascicles, if you, if you boil down a muscle to its muscle, the contractile proteins, and then they're sort of bundled together in these little bundles. And then all those bundles together make a muscle. But anyway, it's one of the few studies I could find that actually showed like a muscle architecture change. Most of the change in range of motion seems to come from this idea of stretch tolerance. So it, if you could explain stretch tolerance, and also I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, if you've also seen studies that support actually actual changes in muscle architecture when, you know, stretching for long periods of time, or if it does seem to be more about stretch tolerance. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Most of the studies are acute studies and, and look at the stretching within a warm-up. Um, there, uh, if you want to, there are a few of them. And if you want to look up some names, there's a guy named Anthony or Tony Blazovich. Who's yeah, in Australia. Right. He's, he's yep. done some work. And you've done uh, his, some studies with him. Yes, I have. And then uh, his graduate students who are now professors, uh, Anthony Kay or Tony Kay from Northampton in the UK, and uh, Gabriel Trejano, uh, also one of his grad students. Uh, they've done some work, and what they found um, was that, as you said, the morphological changes, the change in the muscles are, are at the fascicle, and rather than actually seeing, let's say, longer fascicles, what you'll see is changes in the fascicle angles, and sure. the fascicle angles will go from an acute to a less acute, and therefore you can have a, a so longer... So more, um, more amenable yeah. to being pulled in a certain direction. Yeah. Or also... Uh, fascicle rotation so they'll slide past each other easier and therefore uh, you have less resistance to the to the movement 
So you, you see those fast corrotations. Um, those are the main things that you, uh, you see when it, when it comes to these uh, morphological changes. But then you're asked about stretch tolerance. And so Magnuson uh, was the original uh, researcher that started talking about stretch tolerance. And so what we find here, and that's really important both for the acute changes and for the chronic changes, is that the way I explain it is that if, if I go and I stretch my hamstrings or whatever, and I go to the point of discomfort, there's a little bit of pain there. It's not great, but it's a little bit of pain. But you know what your body does when it feels pain. It's fight or flight. It right. doesn't want pain. So if right. there's pain, something's going wrong. So you turn on the fight or flight mechanism, what turns on? The sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is excitatory. So then it's excitatory, then you, your muscle tone increases and you get tighter. But if you hold that stretch for 30 seconds, you come to the realization that it's not really hurting me. It's not going to injure me. So therefore, I don't need that fight or flight mechanism. I can turn it down and start to relax. And therefore, there's a both a conscious, a semi-conscious or conscious effort to decrease that um, response and allow yourself to relax. So you tolerate the pain more, the pain associated with stretch. There's a psychophysiological effect as well and that has to do with pain so there's this thing called the diffuse noxious inhibitory control so if if you hurt yourself signals are sent back to your cortex and your cortex will then send what are called monoamines you're probably more familiar with things like endorphins and catalins mm -hmm. serotonin right. those kind of um, compounds and it'll cause a global analgesia so the whole body uh, it becomes more resistant to pain. And so again, in terms of stretch tolerance or pain tolerance, putting a little bit of stress, a little bit of pain on the muscle and holding it will cause this diffuse noxious inhibitory control and you'll decrease pain throughout your body. We did a really interesting study with foam rolling one time. Now, obviously you're familiar with foam rolling and there's a talk about how foam rolling will um, cause a decrease in pain because you're breaking up these myofascial adhesions. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we had uh, a massage therapist identify some um, tender spots in our subjects, I'm just trying to remember which muscle, in their calves. And then what we did was we rolled the calves. And of course, what you expect is the, the tender spots would become less tender. So there's an increase in the pain pressure threshold. Mm -hmm. But then the really interesting thing was we rolled the opposite calf. And when we rolled the opposite calf, the calf that was tender had less pain. We didn't even have to touch the calf. So this theory about you know um, foam rollers breaking up adhesions and doing things that you don't have to break up adhesions to decrease the pain. You can roll any other part of your body and the pain goes down again because it's like these noxious inhibitory control. At least, at least that was our uh, our theory or hypothesis. Yeah, so even if the if you're trying to induce a, a local change, applying some type of minor stimulus increasing pain arousal, even if it's a little bit, ends up producing more of a global response or a global tolerance to any pain anywhere is what that suggests. Is that correct? We've published 
I'm thinking four articles now, three or four articles. One article, Shevauchi et al., I can't remember the year, we stretched unilaterally the hamstrings and then we tested the contralateral hamstrings. The hamstrings had an increase in range of motion. Another article, Marchetti et al., we, um, we stretched the, um, uh, the hamstrings and we got an increased range of motion in the shoulders. We stretched sure. the shoulders, we got an increased range of motion in the hamstrings. Sure. And another one, we stretched the plantar flexors, we got an increased range of motion in the neck. So wow. yeah, there's, there's a global thing going on there. Um, could be stretch tolerance. Now, some people say it might have to do with these myofascial chains. Um, a gentleman named Jan Jan Wilke, Wilke in Germany talks about myofascial chains. But myofascial chains work in a longitudinal or oblique fashion. So that mm-hmm. study that they did where they looked at um, stretching the calves and getting a better range of motion in the neck, that might possibly be due to myofascial chains because when you're stretching um, the myofascia, it may link up kinetically throughout the back, um, the posterior chain, and allow you to have more motion. But if I'm going to stretch my right hamstring and see an improvement in my left hamstring, your myofascial chains don't go around the corner and come along to the other hamstring. That's so right. that we thought was more has to do with stretch tolerance, whether it's purely psychological or it's, or it's pain tolerance as well. So there's some people that would argue that foam rolling isn't a great thing to do because you're just mashing your tissues, which, you know, that's an argument that we could explore. Maybe there's some validity to that. But on the other hand, if I'm sitting on a foam roller and I'm rolling over my left piriformis and I'm wincing because of the pain, and then all of a sudden I stretch my right hamstring, there's a strong possibility I may see an increased range of motion in my right hip. Yeah. Interesting. That's fascinating. So but we're talking, we talk, oh, sorry, Dave, go ahead. I was just going to say, when you're talking about mashing the muscle, we, we've, uh, um, a guy named uh, Robert uh, Schleip uh, over in Germany, he says that you need supra physiological forces in order to break up these adhesions in the, um, in the myofascia. That's what you know, <laughs> most people don't have enough strength, you know, in their arms to do that or the, the weight of their body. And so, the kind of research that we showed where you actually get an increased range of motion on the other side or that uh, the pain is decreased on the other side shows that it's really not, that's not the major uh, mechanism. And so what that mechanism would be, would be a thixotropic effect. So thixotropic means when you put a stress on a tissue, then you're going to have a change in the viscoelasticity. The, um, the example I like to use is that take a, uh, a bottle of Heinz ketchup open it up, put it upside down, and the ketchup doesn't come out. Right. So what do you do? You put the top back on it, you slap the bottom of the bottle, now you open it up and the, and the ketchup comes out. So because you put stress on the liquid, it becomes less viscous, it became more fluid, and it comes out of the bottle. Same mm. thing when you're doing a, a foam rolling, you're rolling on the muscles, on the skin, on the fascia, you're putting the stress on it, therefore it's thixotropic and it causes the fluid, and of course you're 70% fluid, to become less viscous and there's less resistance to movement. So there's both a psychological effect or psychophysiological effect, stretch tolerance, and there would be a uh, thixotropic or morphological effect in terms of uh, viscoelasticity. Right. So it 
there's so there's a combination of like circuitry changes for lack of a better term and then like local heat sensitive uh changes to the tissues in question that you may be applying a stress to. So there's another sort of a, there's another sort of pop culture fitness thing about stretching this term autogenic inhibition that comes up all the time. And uh, I think what is sort of colloquial, I should just stop saying this word because I can never pronounce it, but I'm going to try one more time. Colloquially, so just sort of like generally understood that when you stretch that after lag for an extended period of time is due to this idea of autogenic inhibition and autogenic inhibition seems to be primarily something that is happening immediately. And I don't know if we want to get into talking a little bit about the circuitry of like muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs, but um, can you just talk a little bit about autogenic inhibition and its role in to whatever extent that we're seeing range of motion changes. Isn't that also the basic premise behind PNF, right? Proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. Which in that context, it actually makes a little bit more sense, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you contract one muscle, you contract it, you facilitate an auto inhibition so that you can relax it. It's just kind of the same concept, I would think. Yeah, so you're, you're absolutely right. So the Golgi tendon organ is the one that's involved in the autogenic inhibition. The Golgi tendon organ reacts well to um, contractions. It doesn't react well to stretching. But so it can, though, stretch- correct? Under certain conditions, it can. Uh, well, in PNF, we actually, when you contract, it would. But from what I've read, it doesn't have a great uh, stretching, doesn't have a great effect on the Golgi tendon organ. And if it does, then the Golgi tendon organ, as soon as the tension is off it, immediately stops within 50 to 100 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's a small effect. From what I've read, there's barely any, but maybe there's a small effect while you're stretching. There could be perhaps some autogenic inhibition, but it's not going to um, have any effect within one-tenth of a second after you stop stretching. But like, uh, like you said, when it came to proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation or PNF stretching, then you do your stretch, um, you hold that stretch for uh, a prolonged period, and you can disfacilitate the muscle spindles. So that means, of course, when you stretch something, the muscle spindles detect that stretch, and it detects the extent and the rate of the stretch, sends that reflex back to the spinal cord, and causes a contraction. Just like when a doctor hits your your uh, patellar tendon and your quadriceps contract and your um, your leg moves. But when you hold that for a prolonged period of time, the what are called nuclear bag fibers detect that there's no more rate of change uh, in the length of the muscle and they start to turn off. So they disfacilitate. And then the same thing with the nuclear chain fibers, when they've, you've held it at that new length for a period of time, the nuclear chain fibers accommodate that new length because uh, I'm getting into too much physiology here, but the gamma efferents cause a change in the muscle spindle and everything comes back to normal and everything turns off or turns down or disfacilitates. So you, you get a more relaxed muscle from the muscle spindles if you hold it for a prolonged period of time. When you're doing PNF, if you contract the muscles after that, then you are actually putting tension from a contraction and then the Golgi tendon reacts better to a contraction than to a stretch and you would get a, a bit more autogenic inhibition. But the problem is, is any PNF study that I've ever read, 
you would expect that if you had an inhibition, neuroinhibition from disfacilitation or from autogenic inhibition, you'd expect EMG to decrease. And almost no studies have ever shown decreases in EMG. So what a lot of people say, and what I say is the main advantage of PNF is that, so you stretch your muscle, you bring it to a certain position, but the tendon has a higher tension than the muscle. And so right. you bring the tendon to a certain position, but you haven't brought it to its, its um, optimal or, or, or greater length. So now you stretch the muscle, you're in this point of discomfort, now you contract the muscle, you're gonna cause the tendon to elongate. And so that contraction is more of a mechanical effect of PNF, that second contraction, or the, you, you uh, stretch and then you contract, and it's working on the tendon which a passive static stretch doesn't do a great job of working on your tendon because your muscle is more pliable than your tendon is. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience, and inspiring high-quality exercise. And now, let's get back to our conversation. You know, I'd like to shift this because it is, you know, we did get into a lot of heavy-duty physiology here, and um, maybe we can explain to our listeners at what point what the gamma motor system does. Um, But let me go back to something that we were sort of getting into earlier, and that is creating more plastic or more permanent changes in muscle length. And there are some who might argue that that should be an absolute thing that we should be doing. In other words, we're not healthy and fit unless we get people flexible. Now, I sort of counter that with some work that I did with a basketball group in Las Vegas. So there was a basketball training center out there called Impact Basketball. And I was doing some research on the athletes there. And we were measuring them for just about anything we could. I mean, there were over 200 basketball players and we were measuring them for all kinds of strength, flexibility, um, endurance, and then skills. So we had at least two dozen different skill drills set up. And then we did all these correlations to try to understand what physical properties would correlate with performance characteristics. And interestingly enough, we found that the players with the greatest range of motion at the ankle into dorsiflexion, so the greatest flexibility of their plantar flexors, were the worst performers in the group. And so, you know, again, more is not better. We don't always have to strive for these extreme ranges of motion or even what someone considers to be a normal range of motion because that may not necessarily be conducive to improved performance. Absolutely. I did a TEDx talk. Yes, I was hoping you are going to bring this up. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember how long ago it was. Um, But uh, I talk about uh, whether you want to be a Ferrari or a Cadillac. And so when you're talking about elite athletes, they want to be Ferraris. They want to have... They want to be able to turn the corners at high speeds. They want to be able to, to uh, change direction quickly. They want to be able to operate at high speeds. And in order to do that, you need a tighter suspension. Because if you've got a really loose suspension, when you take that corner, then the car would just 
move all the way over and then throw off the, the balance. But if you're driving in Newfoundland in the wintertime and you've got potholes on the highway, you don't want tight suspension. You want a nice loose suspension. So you want to buy this nice Cadillac or this Lincoln Continental or this Mercedes. And when you hit that pothole, you want to go, Ooh. <laughs> you know, you want that suspension just to absorb the shock. I think the sound effect said everything. <laughs> there you go. And, and that's going to protect your back. It's going to protect all your joints. You know, if you're Usain Bolt or you're um, Djokovic, you're not worried too much at the moment about protecting your joints for when you're 63 years old. You're worried about performance and you're worried about changing direction quickly. You worry about that stuff later when you're retired. So mm -hmm. what you need to do is you still need a proper range of motion, but is that because you've got this longer string or is it because the elastic has, is able to move to that range of motion and then snap back quickly? So what's your tolerance for forces placed on your connective tissue? And so if you've got stronger muscles that are still elastic, you can have those snapping back and uh, allow you to um, to perform better. But if you have these really slack muscles or slack tendons, then you have a problem with what's called your electromechanical delay. Right. Your electromechanical delay is that if I contract my my um, uh, biceps <laughs> and it's attached to a tendon, okay, so there's my tendon there. If the tendon is really loose, my bicep will contract, but nothing will happen to my arm because it's taking time to take up the slack of the tendon. And by the time the slack of the tendon is taken up, then eventually my arm will move. So if I'm an elite athlete, I want to move quickly. So I want my tendon to be fairly stiff. So when I contract the muscle, it reacts immediately. But again, that tendon has to be pliable enough. It doesn't have to be really long. It just has to be pliable and dynamic enough to be able to handle being stretched and be able to snap back. So, so a progressive uh, plyometric routine in this case may in fact be more beneficial than a flexibility routine because that plyometric routine in theory is going to improve the tissue tolerance so that when we load it, right, when, when we have this stored elastic energy in the system, when it snaps back, we've got the ability, the stress tolerance within the system to manage that and do it repeatedly, right? Because there's still a super physiological overload at some point, doing that repeatedly over a long period of time could potentially put us in uh, an injurious state, but improving the tolerance to that will help us not to prevent it. I don't like to talk about injury prevention because I don't know that I can ever really prevent an injury but at least reduce one's susceptibility towards it if, in fact, overloading the tissues is a primary cause of it. Yeah, I think you've got it covered. Okay. So, so Dave, there's a... <laughs> we solved Go... the world's problems. <laughs> Going back to the TED Talk, I think you, you wrap it up very eloquently with uh, your version of the Goldilocks zone, which I've heard some other people use that term as well. But... Could you explain uh, your version of the Goldilocks zone when it comes to stretching and specifically within the story, how um, 
I don't want to misquote it, but the time difference between Usain Bolt and the gentleman that came in 12th, I think, and in, you know, why in a certain context that these perform like choosing to force yourself into st- static stretching could have unintended, unintended consequences. Yeah. And before you answer that, if you would be kind enough to explain what the Goldilocks zone is, because, you know, I actually had to look it up. And what I discovered when I when I went into Google and looked at it, the first thing it was talking about was atmospheric conditions for conducive to water, you know, the presence of water in the around planets. So maybe you could just give us a brief definition of the Goldilocks zone and then uh, launch into that. So the Goldilocks zone would be um, specific to the individual. So again, if if we've got somebody who is a long distance runner, a 10K runner, marathon runner, they've got a restricted range of motion. So they just need enough range of motion for them to accomplish their task with the least amount of resistance and the ability hopefully to decrease the incidence of injury. Like I mentioned before, the Goldilocks zone for a hurdler would be different than that would be for a 10K runner because they need uh, a greater uh, ability to withstand a greater range of motion. And their Goldilocks zone would be different than that of a figure skater or a gymnast. So like we said before, not everybody needs an exaggerated range of motion. You just need the right range of motion for the activity that you do. And so that's your, that's your Goldilocks zone. Uh, Greg was mentioned about the TED talk and about Usain, my story about Usain Bolt. And, and the, um, the point I was making in that story was about, um, we found in our 2011 review that on average, the decrement in performance with static with prolonged again remember prolonged static stretching Mm -hmm. was about five percent all right so what i did was for the 2012 olympics i think it was uh, i think usain bolt ran it in 9.58 seconds if i remember correctly i I might be off by a few milliseconds there but whatever Um, so i then looked at the person who ran five percent slower and the person who ran five percent slower you would think, well, that's not very big. That person maybe got a bronze medal or maybe they were in the finals. But the person who ran 5% slower came in second last place in the semifinals, not the finals. Oh, oh boy. So he was 15th out of 16 people in the semifinals. And he was only 5% slower. And in fact, uh, the Canadian sprinter, Andre de Grasse, in the, in the last Olympics was something like zero point and I had it calculated, I'd have to look it up, but it was it was a point, it was less than 1% difference than Usain Bolt, and he got the bronze medal. So mm-hmm. less than 1% difference. So uh, a very small decrement can make a, a huge difference. And if I'm an elite athlete, I'm probably not gonna do an extensive amount of static stretching before my event. I'm gonna emphasize dynamic stretching because a lot of studies have shown that dynamic stretching have provided a similar amount of um, range of motion as as static stretching. And then we went back, we were talking about foam rolling and our studies in foam rolling, one by Halpern et al in 2015, if I remember correctly, compared foam rolling to static stretching and they both had the same increase in range of motion. And yet the uh, foam rolling had no uh, decrements in performance. So again, it's not necessarily that static stretching is bad and we shouldn't do it because a lot of people are taking that position, but we would use it 
in certain circumstances and avoid it in other circumstances, but use it when we should be using it. You know, it, it's back to this notion of the Goldilocks zone, right? It, it's not too tight. It's not too loose. It's just right. So the way we apply these methods has to be just right for the objective that we're trying to achieve. And so static stretching can be a perfectly legitimate thing to do if we're using it for the right reason in the right way, as opposed to don't do it because it's bad for you. Mm -hmm. And another theme we've had throughout this podcast, I think, was it's just, just more is not better. So like mm -hmm. the idea that every single person needs to stretch until, you know, their absolute end range of motion, you know, you may or may not, that may or may not help you towards your goals or your general health. So, well, listen, I can't tell you how many dancers I've worked with who had hip problems, right? Hip instability because they've had to get their legs into the extreme, these extreme positions. And over time, they develop instabilities as a result of it. So just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good in the long run. Although you made the point as well, Dave, it's like, if I have to do it now because I want to perform now, then this is what I need to do. It doesn't necessarily dictate what's going to happen to me 25 years from now, but I'm not worried about that right now because I'm too busy making money doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And there's a fallacy that if you're a professional athlete, you must be really healthy. <laughs> right. part, it's right. the exact opposite. Professional right. athletes are the some of the unhealthiest people in the world in terms of their musculoskeletal health. Mm -hmm. Because you know, I've got arthritic knees, I've got an arthritic shoulder, I have an arthritic back from playing all these different sports that I've done. You know, you think of people, you know, go way back like Joe Namath or anybody. Uh, there's not a not many professional athletes that don't have problems after their career because they push themselves past healthy um, uh, healthy scope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got um, I've got one more thing I want to bring up here, and, and this is from the perspective of perspective, because one of the things that we try to talk about on our podcast is that what works and what doesn't work or what's right and what's wrong is really dependent upon the perspective that we have in looking at it. How are we looking at it and under what conditions are we seeing things? And so all this discussion around stretching so far has been been focused on this notion of musculoskeletal function, if you will. There was a study this year, 2020, by Bisconti and colleagues. And what they were doing was they were looking at the effects of long-term passive static stretching in the knee extensors and plantar flexors on brachial arterial blood flow rate. And so arterial stiffness, vascular function, and what they discovered is people who engaged in long-term static stretching in their legs actually had improved arterial compliance in the brachial arteries. So in other words, it was better for the cardiovascular system. It was better for your heart. They were less susceptible to atherosclerosis and to heart disease because they were stretching their legs. So I don't bring that up as a point of discussion necessarily other than to say that how we look at something really determines the value of it. It's not necessarily whether it's good or bad, but obviously these people found some real value in something that's been contentious, but they've seen that value in a completely different area of investigation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and when you think of, um, you know, we often think of only skeletal muscles and we don't often think of our, our uh, autonomic muscles and mm -hmm. the, the muscles that you have in your veins and your arteries. 
And so when you're stretching, you're again putting stress on those muscles as well, and you're you're stretching stretching those out. So you can imagine that you know we do that to skeletal muscles; they adapt. You do it to your um, arterial muscles or venous muscles; they adapt as well. And then when you're stretching, of course, you're you're you're, you're putting stress on those vessels and you're closing them off. And so you're in a hypoxic or a anemic uh, situation for short periods of time you know there's there's a number of studies on blood flow restrictions these days mm -hmm. so with training you can get stronger with lower loads with blood flow restriction mm -hmm. so when you have blood flow restriction in your arteries you, you release a number of compounds like nitrous oxide and causes this vasodilation so you can imagine that stretching is going to cause your vessels to expand and and constrict a number of times and so it's it's almost like you know doing bicep curls for your uh, for your vessels mm -hmm. interesting fascinating well this has been an absolutely amazing conversation Gigi, is there anything else we want to yeah. ask before we wrap this up yeah sure dave i have one last question that this is just more of a philosophical question i guess not a right or wrong one um so i'm just curious if you could get with everything you know now if we could get Michael J. Fox to lend us the DeLorean. We could go back to 1979 and find 1979 Dave, and you could coach him for, do you think with everything you know now, you could have coached yourself to become, to hang out in the Canadian Football League longer? That's, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not really sure because I think I, I like the term is, uh, how does it go? I, uh, I, I hit above my weight sort of uh -huh. thing. Um, but with all like the said, tricks you know now, everything you know now, do you think you could have somehow filled in those gaps? I don't think so. I um, because, like I said, I ran a, a forty and four nine. Uh, that was, and I, most of the time was five zero. So uh, I can't. I couldn't make myself taller. I worked hard on on weight training. Um, so I benched three hundred and fifty pounds. I squatted five hundred pounds. So I was a pretty strong guy. Uh, I had, like I said, I could do the uh, do the splits, so I was very flexible. But I was born with a certain percentage of slow twitch versus fast twitch fibers, and it's your stride rate that determines how fast you run, uh, for the most right. part. Now, I can increase it a little bit because I got a bit more powerful. I could have become better football player if I'd spent more time doing power lifts rather than doing squats and bench press. Uh, but I didn't know it at the time. So maybe if I did more powerlifting, I might have squeezed in another month or year of the CFL, but I would have never became a 4'6", 40-yard runner. And um, so, no, I don't think with my genetics, I think that I did it probably close to as, as good as I could possibly do. Well, gotcha. from my perspective, I think you did exceptionally well, mm -hmm. and your contribution to science and the health and fitness communities have been unparalleled. Um, and I appreciate everything you've done. And so thank you for spending the time with us, for indulging us in our questions and for providing us some absolutely amazing insights. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, yes. Uh, it was my pleasure. And, and fortunately, even with slow twitch muscle fibers, your brain can still work. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've had a somewhat successful research career.
Hey folks, thanks again for joining us on what I hope you found to be a really uh, enjoyable podcast. Stretching is a topic that a lot of us are interested in. And again, like we said in the beginning, this is a really rare opportunity to sit down with a world-class expert in this field and, you know, just have these honest, open discussions about it. So look, let's keep the conversation going. And in order for that to happen, we need to hear from you. So we'd love for you to reach out to us on our social media platform. So you can find us on Instagram at fitness for consumption and on Twitter at fitness for consumption as well. So we hope to hear from you soon.